Welcome to our podcast. I'm Ethan Whitehill, President and Chief Creative Officer at Crux, the unagency that fuels business growth. Here on To The Point, we get to the point with entrepreneurs and marketers who have transformed organizations by elevating brands and amplifying missions. Our guest today is Tom Butch. Tom served for decades in numerous executive roles at well-known financial services companies, including roles as CMO, President, and CEO, leading employee groups as large as 5,000. He also served on numerous nonprofit boards. Tom retired from full-time corporate work in 2022 and today brings his years of experience to clients in his consultancy and boards on which he serves, including the Board of Crux. Through his consultancy, he worked with clients in global and domestic asset management, wealth management, and banking, and in non-financial industries and nonprofits. In his work today, Tom seeks to help companies understand and leverage their key differentiating strengths, develop business strategies, and effectively articulate those strengths and strategies to core audiences, including investors, clients, prospects, the media, and employees. And can I just say, Tom is a master of many trades and an all-around good human being. So, Tom, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. I'm especially grateful to be welcomed as a master, which is a gross overstatement, but I will take it. Well, I, you know, your resume is uh, is impressive. And what makes it even more impressive is when you meet you in person, when you meet Tom in person, he's just a great down to earth person, which I, I really enjoy. So, Tom, let, let's start here. You served in numerous senior communications roles, and it's everything from marketing communications to investor communications and relations. And that career path led you to executive leadership roles. And that's not necessarily a typical path. What is the value of those skills and why are they uniquely important to the C-suite? You know, Ethan, as I was going along that journey, I guess I never appreciated it to be as atypical as in that time it was. It was an unusual journey for someone to, in effect, graduate uh, from marketing and or communications roles into more general management executive roles. And I guess I never thought it to be atypical, even though it was, because I think the skill set that one needs to succeed in a corporate communications or marketing or in our, our role really lends itself to an executive role. That is, you have to be able to understand the company horizontally, its whole breadth, vertically, in its depth, financially, synthesize that, and be able to articulate it to any and all audiences that are important to a company. And so um, if you're doing that job well, as corporate communications and marketing and IR professionals do every day, You have to know the company in such an in-depth way that progressing to an executive or general management role shouldn't really seem so unusual a step. And if you come at it from the other direction, if you think of people who come up through the business side into C-suite roles, be it CEO or CFO, they absolutely have to have that same skill set today. CEOs and CFOs are front and center every day in articulating the company message. So those two kind of, in my mind, merge. A marketing and communications professional may need to fill in the business side and the acumen related thereto. And a 
executive or an executive who comes up from the, the business or financial side may need to fill in the ability to be articulate and on point and in the moment able to capture the essence of the company and, and spread it through all the audiences. So it never seemed that unusual progression to me. And I think it's much less unusual today than it was. The synthesis of information and its articulation is central to being in the C-suite today. Yeah. And it seems like in that role, from that particular background, you know, we have individuals who are kind of deep and wide, so to speak. And what what what's so great is they they understand the, the marketing field, but they also have this very broad view of the industry in general. And so when you think about one of the the, the main values that CMOs bring to organizations, you know, how do how do chief marketing officers help companies understand and leverage their key differentiating strengths? Yeah, I think it's by identifying and perfecting and promulgating consistently the company's value proposition. That sounds simple, I guess, but it's not. But it's really being the steward of the brand, understanding and expressing what the company does every day, how it does it differently than its competition and why that matters. Uh, we all know that today brand value is very identifiable, very calculable, and as we've seen in the recent past, also very fragile. And I look at the CMO as the keeper of the brand value, in addition to being the one who really, uh, back to my prior comment, synthesizes and promulgates the company's value. You know, the other thing, Ethan, is that today, given the multi-channel world in which we live, CMOs are also business development officers, you know, traditionally marketing supported sales and business development. It's its own business development engine today in many cases. And, and you know, a testament to that is the chief sales officer and, and the chief marketing officer oftentimes are, are becoming the chief revenue officer. You know, they kind of have responsibility across both sales and marketing. It's an interesting point. I have been both. And, you know, over time, I saw that very convergence taking place. Um, it, it became less symbiotic and more whole, if you will, almost one thing, as you point out, merging into a common role. And maybe it is that that overarching perspective sort of across those two areas that, that helps. But when you think about creating effective strategy for business at the end of the day, how does a CMO do that? You know, what is the key to building an effective strategy? Well, again, I think it's understanding what you uniquely bring to market. And if you're not bringing something uniquely to market, uh, that's a problem. <laughs> But it's, it's your, unique, your unique value proposition, who you compete against, how you are different or better. Um, and I think today it's you know, looking ahead and, and seeing where you are vulnerable to disruption because it is so much a part of the world in which we live. We've already always thought of capitalism as being based in creative destruction, but, but the rapidity of that destruction is elevated so dramatically by all the technological change that we have seen. It's it's being the protector uh, versus disruption. It's also how are we going to gather the talent to support the value proposition and how will we invest in our future? All of those things, I think, um, are critical elements of, of a business strategy today. So disruption is a, a very visionary term, <laughs> you know, just thinking in terms of how you're, how you're going to build a business and how you're going to disrupt a marketplace. And, and that is going to be something of particular interest to investors. So how do you successfully communicate with those internal stakeholders that, you know, that want to talk about the vision and disruption, as well as the investors that want to know, well, how is that going to result in a return on, on my investment? I would say transparently and often. 
often is the most simple answer. More is better. Timeliness is critical. One thing you learn as a marketer or a communicator is just about the time that you are getting tired of repeating the message is the time that the audience may be for the first time digesting it fully. That's no criticism of the audience. It's just that repetition, consistency, timeliness are all very critical. Don't hem and haw, get news out quickly, and always, always tether everything back to your brand and the value that it asserts. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in the world of marketing throughout your career even though you're a young man still. <laughs> what, what, are, what, what are some of the most significant shifts that you've noticed just in the last few years? Oh, you don't want me to go back to the chisel and hammer days. Um, you know, I, I couldn't do that, but I could go back to the yellow legal pad days on which one would, uh, when I first started working, draft the memo, give it to an assistant, redraft the memo, give it to an assistant until that process was done and then put it in an envelope where it would travel two doors down the hall. And that sounds so archaic. Uh, but was but was the way business was done. I predate word processing. I predate the internet. And so if you think about tectonic changes in my career, obviously the internet is the biggest of those. And I remember people saying, How, what does this have to do with selling stuff? Or what does this have to do with financial products? Well, we know now. Um, if you think of of the last many years broadly, I guess, I, I would say it's fundamentally the instantaneity of everything. Um, that is so different. And the channels that have been created to perpetuate and accelerate that instantaneity. And, and as marketers, having to be alert in the moment and also to the macro is really a, a very significant change. That's true of PR, too. The endlessness of the news cycle in the old days. Um, I remember you know, when I had corporate communications for what then was one of the largest banks in the country. The news cycle stopped at six o'clock. That was the hard deadline. And then you would, if, you, if, if a story was being written about you, you know, you would sweat it out till the next morning when the paper thumped on your driveway, or if you were really ambitious, drive downtown and get the bulldog edition of a newspaper. Contrast that with just instantaneity, uh, the in the moment reaction and reaction to the reaction and the cycle of that that goes on. I think that's the that's one of the biggest things. I think from a marketing perspective, all the technological change, which has individualized the marketing process with predictive analytics. And again, all, all, all the channels through which people can be reached. And so I, I just think it's speed and, and the degree to which that challenges us to be both in the moment as we must to protect the brand and, and be smart about that, which is around us but also have a larger macro view. Yeah, and that, that's actually a very timely comment given Meta's rollout of threads recently. <laughs> that's just making instant even more imperative, right? And it's just, it's it's a testament to the model that Twitter built, but it also just suggests, you know, that that, that is not gonna die. That model is just gonna continue to evolve. So you are a, a valued contributor to Crux as well. Uh, how did you get involved with Crux? Well, I knew, uh... Malia McRae, the founder, through her time and mine on the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce when she headed marketing for the chamber. And then she set off on her own after having worked at the chamber. And she uh, had an interim step and then decided, hey, I can do something really different with the agency model, which is to say I can deliver full service marketing at a cost effectively the same as hiring one marketing executive. And that that could be a very valuable proposition to any kind of business, but especially businesses that are earlier in their stage and uh, making decisions about allocating resources to marketing. 
And, you know, the model has really taken off and, and proved itself. And I'm just intrigued by the opportunity that Crux creates for companies to engage marketing at a relatively low price point relative to the market, but, but as immersive a marketing experience and opportunities, I think, exists. So that's how I got involved with Crux and how, how I feel so fortunate to be on the board and to be a contributor in other ways as well. Well, and we're we're glad you are. <laughs> and in, in that in that role, you've got you've got more than a front row seat to to what's happening in this entrepreneurial journey. You're actually in the dugout with us, <laughs> which we appreciate. And um, and you know, you have some what I've learned is you've got some unique insights too into the founder's journey. And you know, you've seen entrepreneurs grow their business beyond their natural skill sets. And I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from that as we as we look at it. And can you share your observations on this and talk? a bit about how a visionary can succeed in a growing company. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think you said, how can a visionary can, can succeed in a growing company or or how can a visionary succeed in growing a company? Two, two sides of the same coin, I guess. You know, it's interesting having worked with a lot of Crux clients now, many of them founder, founder-driven and um, visionary-driven companies. The hardest transition, I guess, is... I've by nece- I have of necessity done all these things. I trust my instinct about them. I've gotten the company to here because of trusting my gut and, and putting the whole of myself into the growth of this company. And now I'm at a place where I have to trust others to do some of those things. And I think that's the critical juncture that I've seen is who do I trust to do that? What do I delegate? And delegation is a lifelong journey, right? As a leader, it's a lifelong learning process of how to do it well. And how do I find partners uh, internally or externally uh, who can help me along that journey? You know, my bias is that turning visionaries into operators is a fragile science, right? And I would think that if the visionary can continue to devote the bulk of his or her time to being that visionary, it's in their interest to do so and and find and surround yourself with those resources that can help you unload those things that aren't visionary in nature, but critical to the growth of your enterprise. And that really speaks to leadership decisions, you know, understanding how to lead. And, and you've had numerous leadership roles. How do you define leadership? What is leadership? At its simplest, I think leadership is galvanizing people to a vision in a way that gives them ownership of it and connects them in a meaningful way every day to that vision. I think it's really that simple. It's it's creating the frame into which you insert the canvas that they end up painting. People work to express themselves, to express their professionalism to be part of something bigger than themselves. And and leadership is essentially enabling that process at its simplest. If you, if you turn the the lens on Tom, (laughs) what were some of your important leadership lessons? No, they are plentiful and they never stop. Right. It's interesting. I've thought about this a lot. I think uh, some leaders are born and some leaders um, are created through their own effort. And, and in both cases, leadership is a lifelong journey. And to the extent that those who are born with it don't hone that over time, their skills will wither. And to the extent that those who uh, have to learn it along the way 
feel that they've learned it, they're probably wrong because it's it's a journey. It's not a destination. Some of the things that that I would say I have learned are to be humble to your failures, but even more humble to your successes, to put yourself last. And always remember, it's not about you. It's about the people whom you've been entrusted to lead. And that's that sounds really noble and easy. Um, but leadership is also ego gratifying and, and holding that in check and, and remembering always it's not about you is, is, I think, really important. I think it's know that everybody brings something different to the table and it's your job to unearth that. Um, and as much as, you know, as leaders, we're always trying to find the thing to help make somebody better at something. I think leaders should also spend at least as much or more time leaning into a person's skill set and letting them express that as often as possible. And I think this is, this is uh, one thing I learned uh, over time. And it is when you're exasperated with someone or your team, that's the time it's most important to look in the mirror because as a leader, you probably have not given them the clarity they need to fulfill whatever it is that is frustrating you. And so you have to step back and say, again, it's not about them. It's, it's about them. And it's about the way I help them. It's not about me. And what you're saying there sounds like individualized leadership too. Like you're, you're adapting to the individuals. And as you, as you think about that at scale, so going from five to 50 to 500 to 5,000 employees, which you've had, what, what does that learning curve look like? How does that change? I think that, you know, at, a, at sort of a practical level, the one thing that really changes is that you're managing with large groups of people, you're managing leaders who manage other people. And so your, your leadership lens focuses on enabling leaders to lead. But that's really, a, at the end of the day, to me, a nuance. I think whether it's five or 50 or 5,000, it's providing clarity of mission and giving people the purpose and the tools to express themselves in the context of that mission. That's what leadership is. I love that word purpose. I think that that's so important, that sense of purpose in, in your job. Well, that that's fantastic. And I've got a new purpose for you here. We're to our mystery question. <laughs> and, and I explained this to you earlier. So I've got my hand, my 20-sided die. I'm going to roll it. And whatever comes up is the question I ask you. So let's see what we get. Oh, I like this one. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Um, gosh, uh, I've been the recipient of so many kindnesses in my life. I would have to say it's... Um, my children telling me I'm a good father because nothing in life is as important to me as, uh, as being that and uh, perpetuating goodness in the world in whatever small way I can. So I'd have to say that. So Tom, that about concludes our conversation, which has been wonderful. Any closing thoughts? You know, Ethan, I only have one and um, we grazed over technology and how profound its influence has been. And I do think, you know, one thing about being an older uh, but young and heart guy is that you've seen so much and every technological change makes the one before it seems so uh, passe and so archaic. What's interesting to me is that I've been through a career where we've marveled at the advent of things like word processing, personal computers, the internet, and you and I just very lightly grazed marketing technology and how it's changed our field so dramatically. 
We haven't even talked about AI and we're very early in that, obviously. But what's interesting to me is uh, when, when this conversation has had 40 years hence, all the things that we think in the moment are so avant-garde today and so cutting edge will seem every bit as archaic as, you know, the first handheld phone that looked like a combat thing or thinking the internet was really cool because you could put an advertisement up on it and it wasn't particularly interactive. And so you're left then to say, in a world of that kind of change and, and the speed at which it's accelerating, what is the constant, both as people and as marketers? And I think the constant is emotional connection. And I think regardless of the channel and regardless of the technology and regardless of how the world changes, emotional connection will always be this, the core of marketing. And I think it's something about which we should remember mind ourselves every day, even in the face of constant change and technological innovation. So Tom, if people want to connect with you, assuming LinkedIn would be a good place? That'd be the, that'd be the place to find me, yes. And uh, I'd welcome hearing from anyone who would like to strike up a conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. It's my pleasure, Ethan. Thanks for having me today. 